Welcome everyone to the Hystericology podcast. I'm here, Elizabeth Beckman with Andrea Hansen, and we will be interviewing Valerie Martin, and we're so excited to have you here. And to just start us out the gate, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're doing currently, and then we'd love to just have a deeper conversation with you afterward. Sure. Um, where to begin? I was born in Texas. No, I uh, I am a native Texan and, you know, you can take the girl out of Texas, can't take the Texas out of the girl, even though Texas and my current home state, Tennessee, are at the cutting edge of stupid. I, I do have love for both. Um, and I've been here in Nashville for about 11 years, um, started in residential and then private practice and then into group practice. And then now I'm sort of spreading my little therapist wings into the online world and coaching and content creation. And I've podcasted on and off over the years and have kind of recently rebranded my podcast as well. So lots of irons in the fire, typical Enneagram seven. So tell us a little bit more about your bad bitch podcast. What, uh, where did your inspiration for the name come from? What makes you a bad bitch? What makes a person who's bad bitch in general? <laughs> Great question. Yeah. So bad bitch therapist podcast. And I've, I've always loved creating stuff. I've, I've been making websites since we had dial up internet and our internet service providers, like what is happening at your house? Why, why is all this bandwidth being used? Um, and so I love making stuff and I've dabbled over the years. And then when I had this idea in December of like, this is the thing that feels so resonant and so aligned with me is I don't just want to talk about like one clinical issue all the time, but really the persona that I feel like I bring into my sort of secret sauce as a therapist and as a coach is that sort of bad bitch energy. And to me, that means like being really unapologetically yourself, um, owning your weirdness, owning your quirks. And because, you know, I think like a lot of us, like I grew up like always kind of feeling like, oh, I don't quite fit in and I'm not one of the popular girls. And like, maybe I should try harder to be one. So that freedom to just be like, I'm going to be who can I curse? I guess you said bitch already. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know who the fuck I am. And owning that you know, finding that kind of experiential confidence, knowing that I don't have to wait to feel a certain way inside before I can start to act that way in my life, being assertive, setting boundaries. I'm just, you know, all of that is to me, bad bitch energy. And it's important to acknowledge too, that that's not mutually exclusive with vulnerability, with needing support, all of that stuff too, right. Is all part of the picture. I love that. Love that. And I love that caught my eye right off the bat, the bad bitch therapist. That's just not something that you really see. There's so much um, with therapists. There's a lot of times, a lot of the word that comes to mind that I want to use is posing, right? And posturing as yeah. these very above it all professionals, or even like, oh, well, we, we don't really have personalities. So that's what I'm curious about is what was your journey into that space and being able to claim that space? What barriers did you overcome both internally with your own mm. thought process and externally? How did you get over those barriers? How did you overcome them? It's still happening <laughs> as everything. It's a process. Um, but owning that, it, it's so funny that we're having this conversation today because I just 
had a call a couple hours ago with my sort of business coach, uh, Callie, who's amazing. And and we were talking about like leaning into this this brand, leaning into like myself and my energy as a big part of like what what I have to offer. Um, and and I was kind of joking. I was like, oh, I'm totally going to make some of these TikToks where I sort of contrast like the therapist who's like, yeah, mm-hmm. oh, I'm just, let me hold that space with you, right? And then me just coming in and be like, oh my God, are you freaking right? Like just this boldness. And, and again, they're not mutually exclusive, but then the hilarious part is immediately after that call, right before this, I was doing a virtual EMDR session with a client and she like dropped in. It was her first time doing it. And I was there and I was like, you know, and it's, so it's like, it was real. It was totally real, but that's the space that we were in. And that's why I say it's not mutually exclusive. Like there can be the tenderness, the gentleness, the softness, but that doesn't mean that I'm just going to be sitting here the whole time. Like, okay, yeah. Tell me how you feel. Like there's a time where we need to get in the fucking dirt together. Right. And I'm in it with you because I'm not just going to sit over here and like, ask you questions the whole time. That's not how I work at least. (laughs) Well, and I know, I know for me, I can feel it when someone's either phoning it in, they're disconnected, they're kind of putting on the, the posture. And I know for me, it's also less satisfying when I'm doing therapy or when I'm with anyone and I find myself like falling into those even physical poses of the hand on the chin or (laughs) doing here. This feels like I'm trying to I'm trying to bring the therapist, you know, the therapist vibe and I just need to be a human being, but for you, when was that moment when you kind of had that realization of like, I, I don't want to keep doing kind of the in the box Mm -hmm. work. I need to be me. I need to be the bad bitch. I need to be authentic and be loud and not have Mm. to put on the posturing was, did something trigger that change for you or. Um, great question. If so, I'd better figure that out. Cause I'm like, I don't know, but really like, I think I've felt that way for a long time. And there is a lot of unlearning that has to happen. Like back to your point, Andrea, you know, that it's like, um, what did we have to overcome to fully own like our sort of unique magic and our, our way of being as a therapist, um, because we're taught all of this stuff, which I think it maybe hopefully is getting better, but like in, in grad school and training, the sort of blank slate idea, the, you know, that my, uh, I even struggle honestly with like, my job is not to give advice. My job is not to like, to get, sell my opinion. I'm like, sometimes I will, right? Like, I'm going to try to be really appropriate and boundaried with it. And I'm going to say, take it or leave it. Right. <laughs> like, what do you think yeah. about this? Right. So I think there's ways of doing that that can still be very much ethical practice. And frankly, I think has been a big part of what's made me successful. And I think realizing that like having built a private pay practice and, you know, don't get me started on the whole insurance rant. Like I, yeah, I wish we could be more accessible and we've got ways of doing that with our interns and open path and, you know, various community engagement stuff. But But I think that's why people continue to pay me what they do to work with me is because I'm not just kind of the blank slate. And so um, as far as like, when did that change happen? I mean, I think I've definitely owned it more over the years when I've realized like, oh, this is the feedback that I'm getting from my clients. And this is why they're referring, you know, their friends to me or whatever. 
Um, so I just, you know, really try to lean into that while also being aware of like, you know, it, that doesn't mean again that I don't know if y'all watch shrinking, but, um, the show, oh my God, immediately get on it. Uh, cause Jason Siegel is plays a therapist working for Harrison Ford. It's phenomenal. It's wow. in season one right now on Apple TV, but essentially he, he, he takes his out of the boxness a little too far into, you know, unethical territory. Um, so I'm not suggesting that. I think there's a way that we can very much lean into that level of being human and real that is still ethical. I know for me, I, as you were speaking, even I was thinking, like, I wonder if that's part of what keeps people referring to therapy and psychology as this soft science, because we are so mm. in many cases, heavily educated or seeking to continue to educate ourselves but like you're saying, there is this, I don't even know where the genesis, genesis of it was, this desire or this expectation that we're not allowed to be assertive about, mm. like you said, at certain times really going, no, you know what, do what you're going to do, but I'm going to let you know. Yeah. This, this thing is potentially, this thing is unhealthy. This would probably be a healthy path for you. And I've, I've thought about that too. And I had a, a, a teacher who once gave me a hard time about it, where I said, we almost do need a little bit of salesmanship for that ability to be really effective narratively, because sometimes you have to help a client get the buy-in of seeing the value of what you're presenting. But anyways, I was thinking <laughs> about that while you, were, while you were talking and wondering how, how has your experience of being a therapist or just being a human being improved since being more assertive, not feeling like you have to be so tender or careful about not assertively asserting things versus just yeah. saying it and not being afraid to say it. I mean, I think just my own presence, um, my confidence as not just a clinician, but as a human being uh, is more, it's more felt, it's more real. Um, and God, there was something, this, this might be a tangent, but I feel like it's important to mention that I don't want to forget it. Um, kind of going back to like the being assertive and and being able to say like, Hey, here's this mirror. I'm a little concerned here, right? Like, I think there's absolutely a place for that. But I will say um, that I don't, it, Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach, um, y'all may be familiar with their podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. They're this incredible couple. And Glennon has been a longtime public persona author. Uh, chronicled her marriage and her first or her first marriage in her first book or two, and then is now with Abby on a whole different path. And I will never forget reading in her book Untamed about how when she and her husband were struggling, and then I mean they'd struggled for a long time, and then she had met Abby at this event, had never thought she was interested in women, had never been with a woman, but it was just like this magnetic, like holy shit, what is this thing happening? And like kind of in a panic, went to did a session with her couples therapist solo and was like, I, I, I don't know what's going on. Like, I, I feel really pulled to this woman. Like, I don't know what to do. And the therapist was like, stop, like you need to stop communicating with her. You need to you need to put the kibosh on this. Right. Meanwhile, like if there's such a thing as a soulmate, like this woman might be it for her. And they're they've been married now for years and and are very real that it's not perfect. But I just thought, holy shit, like I never want to be that therapist either, right? Who's like, listen, here's what I think you need to do. So again, I think there's a way that we can be direct, we can be challenging, 
um, we can, you know, call bullshit <laughs> compassionately um, without claiming to be the expert in our clients' lives. But it's such this nuanced thing that I feel like many therapists, they maybe that nuance is intimidating. Um, and I'm sure that I, I've come into it more just with practice. So I know that was a very long-winded answer, but it felt important to kind of give that example of like, also don't do this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. I, I just am curious because I, I think as therapists, we all get slightly different wording, slightly different training around uh, what do you mean when you say that you felt like you were supposed to be or you were trained to be somewhat yeah. of a blank slate for clients? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's that encouragement to take my beliefs, my opinions, my values, my personality, even largely kind of out of the room, like that version of me belongs out there. And in fact, I got to be careful if my shirt has any words on it, like, what does it say? What am I conveying? Can they see the bumper stickers that are on my car? What are they going to think? Um, and I'm just like, listen, if you're turned off by my little wooden plaque in the, in the waiting room that says like, here, science is real and, you know, like anti-racist, whatever, all that kind of, if that doesn't resonate with you, we're so not the place for you. And it would be a disservice to both of us for us to try to work with you so that I can refer you to a million other places that would be a better fit. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's, yeah, the kind of that, that encouragement to just dial down all of the quote unquote personal aspects of ourselves and bring in the evidence-based interventions and build the rapport somehow while just being this therapy robot. <laughs> right. But somehow, somehow keeping in touch with our sense of empathy and humanness, yeah. but, but chopping everything else off. What do you feel like from your own experience, as well as working with other therapists through this growth process what do you feel like that does to the human of the therapist to be placed in that position where we're somehow supposed to be for 40 plus hours a week, not a real human, not a full human. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I'm just going to keep quoting Apple TV shows, but like, it's like this, the hyperbole of severance of like, okay, cool. So I guess I'll just be like myself outside of here and then I'll be some other thing here and that kind of bifurcating like there's a reason why it's this kind of sci-fi idea like it it does not work well in 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 reality maybe in theory it sounds good like oh i can just be this unbiased you know warm compassionate presence but that's not fucking real and people yeah. feel that when i i think too it's so strange we've talked about this before just not even on the podcast but outside of it how we're always in different industries, like with the body and the mind, kind of separating them, even though they're intrinsically connected. Like, well, there's your medical yeah. doctor and there's your <laughs> mental health. It's like they're one and the same. Right. Um, I do find it so strange that there's this weird idea that somehow we are more helpful to our clients if we're less human, in a sense, mm. or less of a whole being. When often what we're trying to help people accomplish is being a whole human being. And be authentic, but I won't be authentic with you. <laughs> yeah, but like, I'm going to dissociate from my true self because I, that's not what's good. And it's interesting too, because yeah. it just goes against like common factors and what we know is effective yes. building therapeutic rapport. But I'm wondering for you, 
in the work that you do in your podcast or your one-on-one therapy or in other situations, what do you feel are, are some of the most effective ways you're able to help people start to kind of choose into being a full human being? Or how much does that different question, mm. I guess, how much does that, mm. what you do is really trying to get people to come out of that shell and like you said, embrace their uniqueness and embrace what they have to offer. Yeah, I hope most of the time, right? Because like we know that when someone is showing up and they've got symptoms of major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder or whatever thing, right? That that the way that that actually manifests in someone's life and the thing that's the things that might actually be driving that are exactly what you're saying of not being this whole integrated human. And so, yeah, we, we're maybe going to talk about some of your symptoms and we're going to maybe talk about some behavioral strategies that might be like dials that we can tweak to see if we can get anywhere with this. But it has to come back to that, like the sort of like, I, so I'm a big act person and I love sort of the emphasis on like what matters to you and and the the distance between like if that's your true north and you're way over here know the fuck wonder you're depressed, right? Like it's, you're not being the person that you are sort of designed to be. So what are some of the things you do in your podcast and in your personal practice that um, kind of revolve around helping people to either become more of themselves or become a more fully realized professional? It seems like, like you said, you have a lot of irons in the fire, Mm. but maybe for anyone listening who is interested to know, what are some of the things you're doing that revolve around that? Like with clients or for myself per- personally or Just any of it? <laughs> Ooh, yes. Well, I mean, for myself, it's, you know, like I kind of said before, I think the fact that I'm obsessively uh, always kind of engaged in some sort of personal growth and reflection work, like that's there. And it doesn't mean that I've like, I've figured it out once and for all and I'm done and I'm like the most whole integrated person ever. But it's just the fact that I'm like willing to stay in the game with it. And that to me makes me think about like how sometimes clients will be like, oh, does this ever get better? And I'm like, the good news is no, it doesn't. I mean, and and it does, right? Like hopefully the symptoms improve. But in terms of like, does this ever end? Like, it, it no, it actually doesn't. That's the good news is that this commitment to being wholly yourself when we are thrown into a culture, maybe a family where swimming with the current looks like one thing and maybe that's not really you. It is a commitment to a way of living. It is an everyday thing. And so like, what does that look like? Like, I don't know. It might be, well, so if you if you were doing what felt right and aligned, you know, like helping people figure out like, wh- what is that resonance in you? And when does that dissonance show up? Like, when can you feel like, this is not quite it. This does not, like, I'm definitely doing this because of people pleasing. Okay. Okay. So good to notice, right? That's not going to just vanish forever and you're never going to do it again. But what would be the more resonant thing? And and is there a, a hint of that that we could start to step toward? What you're saying made me think about a couple of clients, one I've worked with recently, one in the past. And I remember it was a fundamentally transformative thing, some of what you're talking about, where they felt trapped, like they mm. were moms in particular. And they were like, well, I can't, I have to be here. And I remember it was uncomfortable for them offering this frame of, but, but no, you don't. 
Now, it, the idea of, of stepping <laughs> away or leaving probably just seems infathomable, mm. <laughs> but <laughs> it was an interesting thing when they were able to realize, oh, I'm staying and I'm choosing to stay. Yes. I could be choosing to go, but I'm choosing to stay. And they were still doing the same act that, mm. thing, that they felt I have a, a responsibility here of caring for my children, but they were able to do it from this place of empowerment of yes. choosing to be here. And anyways, that's something I wanted to share that what you were saying made me think of, because sometimes being more of our true selves, I think is not just like transforming everything we do. Mm-hmm. But like mm-hmm. you said, if what's driving us is something that's out of sync with our values or what matters to us, sometimes it's finding even mentally, emotionally, a driver that's more true to our true North. And it's Mm -hmm. like for these moms, it wasn't about stopping being a mother. It was just knowing, oh, I have empowerment in the choice. And that transformed everything. I've seen quotes lately, or I've I've heard things that are supposed to be uh, meaningful or motivational along those lines of, if you are a person who is strong, then uh, somehow you went through things and like it was you didn't have any choice in becoming that way or something like that. And, and with my practice, with my, in my opinion, there is always a choice. You do always have a choice mm-hmm. and it takes away that sense of empowerment. If we say, or if we allow clients to believe like, Oh, well, I got to where I am today because I was just in these situations and I just had no choice. No, you mm-hmm. absolutely had choices and you cho- chose in a way that either aligned you or disaligned you with that deeper sense of self, that meaning and purpose, that true north. And mm-hmm. then from there, that's where different symptoms can arise. And I'm I'm so curious, burning question within me, because of a little blurb on your website and also just the way that you're phrasing everything so mm-hmm. far, I want to hear your spiel on diagnoses. Ooh, yeah. Diagnosis culture. (laughs) Sure. One of, I mean, the part one is like, oh, I am out of practice because I've never taken insurance. And so I'm like, thank God I don't have to be like, well, you know, I guess it's time for differential diagnosis. I mean, there are times where I feel like diagnosis can be helpful. For instance, if someone's got some OCD stuff going on or they've got relationship OCD and you're just like fulfilling, you know, continuing to get, get them stuck in that reinforcement pattern. That's not helpful, but largely like, what are we doing with diagnosis? It exists to sort of like fulfill this role within the managed care system. Even the name of that is gross. It it puts the emphasis on the symptoms and not figuring out like what's really driving it, the systemic levels of what's driving it. It's very individualistic, right? And so if it, if it helps to normalize and validate some of like your kind of your experience or the things that are challenging for you. Like, I don't, I'm not super identified with like the ADHD diagnosis, but like I, I resonate more with like squirrel brain, even though on paper I'm, you know, meet diagnostic criteria. Um, it's still just like, if that helps you to, to be kinder to yourself about it, fine. But ultimately at the end of the day, there's a lot that's harmful about that sort of diagnosis culture too. What do you find harmful about it? Well, that it puts people in boxes. I mean, there are times that I think people, while uh, again, there's that value of like, hey, if it normalizes and and helps you feel kinder to yourself, then it's a great, use it. If it helps you get better treatment, I mean, there's that 
um, kind of logistical thing. But there are times where people kind of latch on to it, like, like, oh, well, you know, I'm just ADHD, so this is just how I am, or I'm just this. And it's like, okay, great. That's called a fixed mindset, right? I'm not saying that if you work hard enough, you won't have ADHD anymore. But, you know, is just being so attached to that narrative actually helping? But more than anything, I think the biggest harm comes from the treatment machine itself of going like, okay, well, you, this patient has major depressive disorder and therefore they need, you know, this medication and they need 10 sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy. And then we think they're done. Right. Yeah. Or even that the idea that this is an illness that you will have for life. Um, Yeah. Something that really bothers me about the diagnostic system is that it got so integrated into society in the wrong way. There is no scientific evidence that diagnoses are based on a chemical imbalance. Yes. It was all based on pharmaceutical campaigning that was done a couple decades ago. And science's research has shown over and over and over again that that's just not the case. And yet, you know, that's that's where the medication stands. And then that's the idea of, mm-hmm. well, I was just born with my different chemicals and I'm going to have different chemicals my entire life. When in in reality, it's more of a case from the understanding of research at this point that maybe there are systems of of your brain that are underdeveloped and and need Mm -hmm. nudging in the right direction through some different various activities or different different modalities that can be used through therapy. Maybe some medications can help motivate you to be able to accomplish those modalities, techniques, or activities. Yeah. But for the most part, like the rest of the body, brains can become whole. They can heal. It's not this chronic disability that you're born with and you will have for life. And that always, that really gets to me within the mental health field structure. Right. And it's so tricky because it's like on one hand, if somebody is going like, okay, like I have treatment resistant depression. And so like, I just know that that means that I need A, B, and C, and I can accept that about myself. Like, I love that they're, you know, being accepting of themselves and and acknowledging that, hey, I'm, I work a little different in this way, or I have some different needs. Cool. But again, it's that like latching onto that. And, and it's not even like, it's not the, the quote, the client's fault or the patient's fault, because like you're saying, it's been fed to all of us. And even the therapist Um, or the doctor, Yes, right? This is what we were all taught, all of us. It's, it's not nobody's individual fault. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's so messy too, because like you've probably seen, I mean, I don't know y'all's exact sort of stance on the medication thing, but like you said, there's times where it's like, Hey, this might be the thing that you need to even make you feel like you have access to any of the skills that we've been working to develop. Right. Like sometimes that's just where people are at. Why does it work? I don't freaking, I don't think anyone really knows, right? Like it just tweaks some little part in the brain a little bit differently, but it's just one of those things where there's so many issues with that kind of, you know, big pharma and the fact that it's it's a state of trial and error. And that a lot of the times it just, people get disappointed and frustrated over and over again, or they finally find something that works. And then six months later, it doesn't, and we don't know why. So it's really frustrating, but I will say I have seen it enough times even if it's like I could fit on my hands and toes, I have seen enough times where whether it's placebo effect or something else, a medication has made a massive difference in someone's life. And so I will just always say it's worth exploring. 
right? Like whether this means for now, or this does mean for longer, whether that's placebo or it's something else, like we may not ever know. But I do know that if you're not willing to do the other stuff with the medication, you're certainly largely getting placebo. But I think, I think what's so challenging about um, kind of the medication conversation, because I'm, I'm more in the boat of similar to what you're saying, where let's try less invasive things first. Let's try Mm -hmm. behaviorally mindset kind of uh, systemically or relationally seeing if making those adjustments makes a difference or even often I'll I'll call like the three pillars of health. There's kind of four, but sleep, how you're eating, Mm -hmm. you know, making sure you're actually drinking enough water, getting exercise because often those are just that base level medicine that I, you know, if we don't talk about them, we could be really setting someone up for a major disservice because they're trying to work it out, but maybe they're not eating enough or they're not drinking water. They're not getting sleep, but yeah. The, the medication, and we've talked about this, the challenge with that industry too, is just the lack of, I think, informed consent. From my perspective, I have clients who do seem very much impacted positively by medication. And yet mm-hmm. no one really sat down with them and talked about the impacts long-term, especially. Mm-hmm. And like we said, it might be working, but we don't know why. And, and not to kind of shift us off that topic, but in a similar way, shifting back onto diagnosing, I feel like there's also not enough informed consent about the potential repercussions of diagnoses. Yes. All of us are in the same boat. We don't accept insurance and that, like you said, we could have a whole conversation around, but um, for anyone listening who doesn't know, right. A diagnosis could maybe mean nothing to you. If your insurance company has that, some diagnoses can impact someone's ability to adopt children. Mm-hmm. people's ability to go into the military, hold certain positions, maybe even if they're into it, uh, owning a firearm. And so mm-hmm. I don't think enough times as therapists, we, we talk about that, but I'm wondering yeah. for you, um, how, how do you feel your practice has been impacted by not having to jump through the hoops involved with working with insurance or through insurance? I mean, it allows us to work much more flexibly because, you know, we don't have the fear of, and, and frankly, like I'm speaking a little bit um, with just sort of like the horror stories that I've heard. So I don't know the specific ins and outs of how it all works. I mean, I know there's these like things called clawbacks where it's like, oh, we paid you. Just kidding. We're going to take that back. Like, ooh, that's just a gross word. Um, but yeah, so like to a degree, some of it is a bit... Um, I'm guessing a little bit, but, but I do know, I mean, when I worked in residential, absolutely. There were times where the, we would, as the clinicians would be providing information to luckily, I didn't have to usually talk directly to the client's insurance case manager. We had the go-betweens of our utilization review people who would say, well, here's all the clinical data. Here's why they need more days. Here's why they're not ready. And still, I mean, you guys know, people will get discharged because insurance is like, well, we think you're ready. And the clinicians are going, absolutely not. They are not ready. Right. And so that's just really, right. And so like, I don't know how much that happens on an outpatient basis quite to that level, but I do know that it happens where it's like, okay, we think you've had enough sessions now. And it's like, that's actually not your purview. And I will say the one time that I had to directly take one of those calls with an insurance case manager because UR was like out for the day or something. The guy made me cry. Like he the, wow. the, the, he was like just coming after me with these questions. 
And I'm just this, this like at the time, I don't know, 27 year old therapist. And I'm just like, I'm giving this strong clinical data for why this person's not ready to discharge. And he's just hammering me. Well, why aren't you doing this? And why aren't you? And I'm just like, I'm going to hang up on you. You are rude. So anyway, going back to your question of why, you know, why we've, what it's like to practice outside of that system. Um, I mean, yeah, I think that, that it's better client care for, and it sucks to say that because I don't want to be gatekeepy in the other sense either of like discouraging people from trying to use their benefits if that's what they need to do for their therapy. But is it going to potentially impact the care that you get? I think it can, you know, and that sucks. Especially I think with the, what often people won't know is the low compensation rates. So where, you know, often therapists seeing clients where they are being seen and the, the treatments covered by insurance are in these clinics where their schedules are just packed to the brim yep. because the company wants to make sure they're making enough money to pay all the mm -hmm. overhead staff plus the therapists. And so it is, it's, it's a challenging dynamic. We've both had experience, Andrea and I working in insurance settings and then now being Oof. in the private practice realm. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely, I feel like night a and day, night and day difference, much better. Yeah. Different. And I would say too, that like to that point of, you know, the reimbursement rates are so low, like obviously <laughs> nobody wants a burnt out therapist that sucks, right? Like how much are they really going to be able to help you? So we need to be making a living wage. Um, and, you know, hopefully one where we can take reasonably good care of ourselves. And if insurance makes that to where I have to see twice as many clients, ooh, the quality of care and quality of my life, it might suffer as a result. But the crazy thing about it is how variable it is from one freaking city and state to the next, right? Like you'll talk to therapists in one state or city who's like, oh, our reimbursement rates are actually pretty good. And so maybe most of the therapists there take insurance. But then, you know, two hours down the road, that's like like here, almost no one. I, I mean, I know there are therapists in town who do, but the people that I know do not. And, and so it's just... The fact that it's that variable um, is really makes it really confusing for the consumer. Yeah, and I think it fake keeps treatment from people who sometimes need it pretty desperately, or I don't want to say the most, but mm -hmm. need it pretty desperately. Yeah, mm -hmm. it definitely does, and it's it's unfortunate because the client doesn't know the difference. No therapist is entering the room that I know of and saying, "Just so you know." I, I see just like 70 clients a week and I am so burnt out. <laughs> so yeah. I am going to be here with you, but I'm not going to. But not really here. here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I might not remember your name. Like, <laughs> consult the schedule right before. We talk about how sad it is sometimes certain over oh. therapists. It's like they don't even remember the client session to session. And then you're like, how are you even doing meaningful yeah. care? The and horror the stories. Yeah. <laughs> like assuming this is the professional and this is what they're supposed to be doing. And it's, it's so hard, but I I'm curious. So for you in your practice, you run a group practice for therapy and mm -hmm. then you also do coaching. What is it that you do on the coaching end? Um, on the coaching end. And I've done like a smattering of kind of informal coaching over the years. Um, and, and that's been, I mean, if someone finds me online and is like, I would love to work with you and we chat and I'm like subclinical symptoms, right? Like wanting to work on goals, wanting to work on some subclinical stuff. 
cool, let's do it. I'm working with you as a coach, not as a therapist. I'm not practicing therapy outside my state lines, right, of where I'm licensed. So in a way, it's been a lot of honestly overlap. I think sometimes when you ask people, therapists or coaches, the question of what's the difference between coaching and therapy, yes, obviously there are differences. The biggest one being acuity. Um, but I think sometimes in an effort to like either cover their ass or like, I don't know, feel legitimate, um, the, that difference is maybe embellished a bit much. Are there life coaches who get out of their lane and are doing trauma work and probably shouldn't be? Absolutely. That happens. Um, but with therapists, like we kind of have the benefit of, you know, as long as we're practicing ethically within our sort of, um, geographic bounds, I can do coaching in any therapy session I want. So there's not a huge difference in that capacity. Um, but I'm I'm working on getting into the type of coaching work that's has more sort of structured containers, which is really exciting to me because I do a lot of long-term therapy with folks. Um, and, you know, it's not usually because they're super high acuity, but people who they know they don't necessarily need to come to see me every two weeks, but they like to. It's part of their self-care. It's part of their processing of the world. And, and, and then, you know, there's folks who maybe are in uh, a place where they're having a little bit more acuity um, and distress going on. But but I like the idea of having sort of a defined container of for two months, we're doing this. For three months, we're doing this. And that's really exciting to me. So I've honestly just really started in that. I don't have a lot of uh, experience under my belt for how that will actually feel different. But uh, it's interesting because there's the therapy side of me that's like, well, you know, we need to be realistic and and know that we're not going to, you know, solve all the world's problems. We're not going to reach every single goal in this period of time, right? That would be a managed care kind of thing. Like you need to be cured of your depression in, you know, 12 weeks. Um, but I do want to play with that idea of like, let's try to set some reasonable goals of what we could accomplish during this time frame and let's move through this sort of um these specific steps or these parts of the system that I've identified are going to be successful for almost anyone with this type of goal and that's just really exciting to me so that was I keep giving long-winded answers I'm sorry <laughs> I love it though I love hearing your thought process and I so I do a short-term process as well it's seven sessions yeah. Um, and I love it. I really found that, uh, the clients get what they need and I really enjoy the entire process. And then I send them on to work with whatever other specialist they, they want. Maybe it's a a marriage and family therapist next. Elizabeth is a marriage and family therapist. That's why I'm pointing at her. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, or maybe they want to go on to see, um, you know, a Reiki specialist, whatever it is for them. And I've, I've just really loved it. So I hope that, hope that you're able to explore it thoroughly and love it as well. And just being open with figuring out what that process is. It's scary. It was scary for me starting out because, you know, as therapists, we're not going to make guarantees, right? Unlike a lot of the life coaches that you'll see, Uh (laughs) you know, untrained people Mm -hmm. um, who are saying, uh, you know, you're going to get these guaranteed results, you know, we're not going to do that. So how do you even go about selling or how do you go about marketing or um, getting that kind of stuff started it it was it was scary it was tricky but what I found is that when you just get started and trust that you have 
all of those years of experience under your belt, you're going to be able to figure out how to give each client the biggest bang for their hour and for their buck, it's going to happen. And and great things end up occurring when you both know there's a deadline. There's a, there's a time that it's all going to stop. So there's this Mm. extra sense of, okay, I'm going to get it all done. I'm going to be motivated. I'm going to totally go for it. It's really incredible. That's awesome. That's, I want to just comment on, on that for a moment that, um, I think that that it's really important, especially for any therapists hearing this, that that you don't have to go into coaching to have that flexibility to play with ideas like that, to say, I have a seven session process or I only do intensives or whatever it is, or I I only do the trauma therapy and, you know, I, you know, work concurrently with other people for the other stuff. Like that's inspirational to me to hear that you've given yourself that kind of, freedom to define what your work looks like. And and again, you, you wouldn't have that freedom if you were in a setting that was insurance-based. So it's another thing that allows clinicians to really do the work that they feel is most effective and most life-giving for them um, is you got to be working outside of that system. So the question for you from what you just said, what is most life-giving to you? What really fuels you to work on or the type of clients or the types of issues that really resonate with, like you said, what gives you that energy and that life fuel? Yeah. Um, I'm I'm still trying to put the language around this right now because this is my current challenge with my marketing stuff. But I I think what I'm getting to is like the people and and not always, but we know a lot of it comes from our own struggles, our own story. Um, and I think the people who I'm most excited to work with are ones who are motivated, are like go-getters, you know, even to the point where they might be a little too, you know, exacting of themselves, a little ha- too hard on themselves, but they're also stuck. They're also in their own way, whether it's because they're, you know, going a million directions, they're afraid, they're, you know, need to work on some of the underlying stuff and, And so it's like, how do I simultaneously not be hard on myself and yet actually have more success in getting to the thing that I want to get? How do I keep my own word to myself and and actually be able to develop that self-trust instead of being like, here I go again, I'm back on my bullshit, I'm not doing the thing I said I was going to do. So making it human scaled, like we have to work within reality um, and our limitations and our trade-offs. But I get really excited about helping people. I mean, it sounds so cliche and so broad, but like helping people live into their potential, right? Like closing that gap because that gap has been the so painful for me to feel. And so when I feel like I'm doing the work of narrowing that gap myself now, and I'm like, yes, this feels so good. It's about time. I'm like, I don't want you to wait another five years to do that. I want you to do it now. And I want to help you. And whether whatever that looks like, whatever the you know, people are like, oh, well, I've already done, like, I've read every time management book and I've read every productivity book and I should just know how to do it. Well, guess what? Maybe you're trying to square peg round hole yourself and you're also don't have the support and the accountability you need. So let's customize it. Let's follow the data and let's get you that support and accountability. So that was, a, I don't know what that was, but that's what yeah, I'm feeling. It was, awesome. it was <laughs> great. <perfect. laughs> I'm, I'm wondering too, you talk about kind of an interest in helping people with mindset and overcoming self-sabotage. 
I'm wondering for you, do you have like a personal, personal experience with self-sabotage that you're, you're willing to share about that for you kind of drives that desire to help other people recognize you, you, even some of what you just talked about where things fall Mm -hmm. into that self-sabotage and people get in their own way. Do you have experience with that? And uh, how do you work with your clients on that? I will say yes, but I'm not going to say yes. And I'm going to say yes, but <laughs> Good. no improv. Um, <laughs> but actually I, I, I get a little cantankerous about it and I'm like, fuck self-sabotage. Like that to me is a convenient kind of narrative to just be like, Oh, here I am self-sabotaging again. Okay. Let's actually break it down right? Like, let's look at what's actually happening. Because I really think that sometimes that becomes yet another narrative of like, this is just what I do. I self-sabotage. Whereas really like, well, were you prepared for the exam? Like maybe was there a gap? Like were there actual things happening that we should look at that might be things that we need to work on? And that's way more empowering than just like, oh, well, you know, I don't believe that I'm worthy of this. And so I sabotage myself. I get there's time where we, there are times where we do need to kind of look at what is the kind of underlying core belief stuff like that does happen. But I think that a lot of times that it becomes a convenient narrative that is way less empowering than actually breaking down the variables of what is getting in the way and what can we do about it. So it's kind of it makes me think of even what you're talking about with mindset of like diagnosis too. It's for you. I'm getting a sense that it's wanting to help people recognize it. It's great to know if we do certain behaviors, maybe like that results in what looks like self-sabotage. It might be great to know we have a diagnosis, but it's, it's what we do with that or how we relate to that information. That sounds like for you, you're wanting to help people not, not make excuses for maybe things that they might have the power to change the power to make better in their lives. Because sometimes if we just, like you said, well, I have ADHD. So this is Mm -hmm. my reality. There's nothing I can Mm -hmm. do. Or I self-sabotage. It is that convenient excuse to maybe justify why we didn't try harder or um, like you said, not explore it deeper. And um, I'm wondering with exploring things uh, uh, kind of deeply with your clients, um, what are, well, let me see if I frame this. Mm-hmm. And, and to be sensitive of time too, I want to make sure we're sensitive. Are you doing okay? Or do you have a hard stop at three? Um, I can, I can go a few minutes over, but not much. Sounds good. Um, when it comes to working with clients and getting them past self-sabotage, mm-hmm. uh, what do you feel like is one of the most effective ways to do that? Hearts work. And not that it's the one and only, like, I think there's a lot of different ways that we can sort of allow dialectics to exist and explore, you know, conscious versus subconscious. So there's all kinds of different languaging that you could put to it. But I say parts work because like, if you were to think of, you know, a person having an affair and they're like, I don't know why I'm doing this. I love my partner. God, I'm a piece of shit. Why am I doing this? Is this because I have some, and I'm like, well, you're doing it because you want to have your cake and eat it too. You're doing it because a part of you wants this, but a part of you wants this. And that's very normal, right? And so we have to acknowledge that it's very normal for, for both of those competing desires to be present. And then it can be a process of, okay, so who was in the driver's seat when you picked up that, that phone, right? Like, well, it was my teenager part who wants what she wants, Okay, 
like we can notice that and hopefully we can be loving toward that part and understand what that part needs. And is there a way that that part can get that need met that isn't out of alignment with your values as the wise adult, right? Um, so I feel like that's a really effective way for helping to make space for, I mean, when self-sabotage is happening, that's exactly it is there's competing motivations and competing desires internally. So how can we acknowledge all of that and then cultivate um, that ability to access and align with what does my wise adult self want and want to do in this situation? And it almost kind of sounds like for you, potentially self-sabotage is more of a placeholder term. It's once you get deeper into the parts work and you realize what's driving it, there's probably something far more meaningful and far more helpful to call whatever's going on for you versus I just self-sabotage. Exactly. You get into the weeds of it. um, Mm -hmm. That's where maybe there's the chance to help people gain that insight. Like, I don't know if you have a question you want to ask before we start to wrap things up. Well, I think overall what's coming to mind for me is just this, um, this overarching sense of empowerment over labels where Mm. the label might just be like, like Elizabeth was just saying that placeholder or that thing that keeps you stuck in it of this is what's happening, or I'm a Sagittarius or I have ADHD (laughs) or I have depression or I self-sabotage or whatever it is. I'm just a screw up, you know, or I'm a seven. Yeah. I'm a seven. (laughs) I'm a, I'm a red yellow. Uh I'm a, you know, FJNP, whatever. I don't even know. But but any of those are just a, you know, this is my fixed state of being. And I have to learn how to cope with that. I have to learn how to manage that. I have to learn how to tell everybody in my life how to treat me so that I can react to them in the the way that they like, because Mm -hmm. I have this way that I am. And that's just how it is. Whereas what you're talking about with your approach. And I think Elizabeth and I both agree very much. And we both, um, I think we're all on the same page, which I think is amazing that more and more therapists are stepping into this space of, no, this isn't just a situation we're going to manage for you. We're going to dive deeper. We're going to see what are those other parts of yours um, deeper down? What are their needs and how are they trying to get those met? Or what is in general, what is really going on so that with that deeper awareness, you can step into a space of empowerment. I I love that. I love that. Mm-hmm. So for anybody who's listening, who wants to be able to find you, how can they do that? They can go to, I mean, the best place is probably my, my little link tree. So, um, linktr.ee, the link tree slash V-A-L-K-A-Y Martin, Val K. Martin. That's got all my bad bitch therapist stuff. It's also got all the Gaia Center stuff for my practice here in Nashville. Um, and also badbitchtherapist.co slash private podcast that soon and hopefully by the time this is this airs, this link will be live that I'm about to create a private podcast series called What Your Therapist Won't Tell You. Um, so it'll be a limited uh, episode series that I'm super excited about. Um, and then the last thing that I want to just touch on briefly too, it, it kind of with the coaching versus therapy thing is as much as I do see the value in the boundaries and the lack of sort of dual relationships, like, you know, we're not having a friendship here with therapy, when you're working on, you know, some of the things that you work on in that space, totally understand that. What I also love about coaching though, when you're working with these subclinical issues and you're working a lot on on goals and potential and empowerment 
is the boundaries actually don't need to be quite as rigid. And so I like love that there's this opportunity to, yeah, if, if it fits, we could have a friendship. And, and that's something that, again, why I see, I see the ethical need for that in the therapy space. Sometimes it's really sad because I don't think it always needs to be quite as black and white as it is. Um, and so that is something that I really like about the coaching world too. Oh yes, absolutely. There's really no other professions that are as strange around that as <laughs> therapists. Like somehow as yeah. a therapist, you're supposed to not advertise really, not really ask for reviews, testimonials, or yeah. testimonials or referrals, right? Because then you might have a, a, a weird conflict of interest between the different clients and the people that they know. There's yeah. so many different things like, and, and you can't advertise or work with your friends and your family. And that's, if you go to any business marketer, anybody who's going to help you with your business, every single thing that they tell you to do, you can't do because you're a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> it's this right. really strange dynamic. And that is a really cool thing about coaching. Because I think mm -hmm. once you're a seasoned therapist, once you've been around the block a few times, you know how to set those boundaries and how to manage them appropriately. Exactly. And that's like, you know, I, I'll have a client, you know, ask me a question sometimes now. And I'm like, you know, I, sometimes obviously it would depend on the question, but I've not really been asked any inappropriate questions. I'm going to answer the freaking question, right? Like, I'm not just, why are, I'm curious about why you're asking that. Oh my right? God, <laughs> like, so like we're tired. <laughs> so yes, I also like to just name that there's inherent weirdness of the relationship, right? Because like, I, you know, I appreciate when I don't expect my clients to ask me how I am, but when they do, I'm like, oh, thanks for asking, you know, but just acknowledging that this, this relationship is kind of inherently weird. Like I know a lot about you and you know, only what you see about my, me on the internet. So no, it just it is, is what it is. <laughs> it is interesting. It's unbalanced. And it's so strange. Like you're saying in other professions, like you could go out to dinner with, you could be a friend with your lawyer or yeah. cut your body open and does a surgery. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, I don't know if we should be insulted or if we should, it's a compliment that we're so powerful as therapists. Too sacred. We cannot, <laughs> we cannot have those same relationships because obviously we understand the exploitative realm. Yes. Don't, don't sleep with your clients. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, it is an interesting thing to be like, wow, we're either perceived to not be able to manage that well, although like we're very trained in that, or we're we're perceived to just have a lot of power and well, you just yeah. this clean separation. So it's, yep. it's an interesting topic, definitely. And we're so grateful to have had you on. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us, to share a little bit about yourself and what you're doing. And in the future, if we, uh, I don't know, we're wondering, would you ever be open to coming on again and talking about some of these other topics, whether it be insurance or therapy mindset, uh, would you be open? Yeah. Absolutely. This was the most fun that I've ever had on a podcast. And oh, I know I talked so a lot, but I just like look forward to listening. I look forward to getting to know both of you more and I look forward to hopefully coming back on. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Valerie. Talk to you later. Thank you. You take care. Yay. Um,